This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. You may be seated and turn to Romans chapter 8. If you're in the Sanctuary Bible, that's on page 944. As Julie and I think about building our family and our family culture, and as we've been about that project for over 12 years now, uh, I suppose few people have influenced us more than Bishop Stewart and Mama Catherine. And as one example, I remember Stewart talking about building culture in the family by building a sense of identity. This is who we are. And then what are the obligations? What are the responsibilities of being part of that family? So he told how he would frequently turn to his children and say, remember, you are rucks. And rucks always and then I forget what he said after that, but that's okay because I'm not a ruck. I don't need to remember that. But the overall idea really left an impression on me. And so now I do that with my own children, those things that I care about, things that I want to make a part of our family culture. So as one example, I'll look at them and I say, crawls always tell the truth. And so if we need to have a conversation about truth-telling or lying or stretching the truth, exaggerating, fibbing, I'll appeal to their identity. You're a crawl. And remind them what the obligation of being a crawl, one of the things is crawls always tell the truth. The Apostle Paul is doing something similar here in our passage, Romans 8, verses 12 to 17, where he's building up a sense of identity for the church at Rome who are he hearing his words. You're children of God. He builds up that sense of identity as well as reminding them, and here is the obligation that goes along with that identity, namely, put an end to the sin in your lives. So we're going to do this a little bit backwards. We'll look at verses 14 to 17 first, where Paul's laying out this identity as children of God, and then we'll bump up to verses 12 and 13 as he talks about the obligation we have as children of God. And finally, we'll see how practically we fulfill that obligation. But the main idea of these five verses is this. As children of God, owners, heirs, recipients of a heavenly kingdom, we are obligated to put an end to everything left in us that remains in rebellion against God and his kingdom. But this, in this effort, we're not alone. If you hear nothing else, hear these words. Let me say it one more time. This is, this is the essence and the meaning of what we're studying here today. As children of God, heirs, owners, and recipients of a heavenly kingdom, we're obligated to put an end to all of those things that remain in us that are in rebellion against God and his kingdom. But in this, we are not left alone. All right, let's look first at verses 14 to 17 and our identity as children of God. Follow along with me. Paul says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom, that is, by this Spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. And in this way, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. 
So in verse 14, Paul says, if you're in Christ, which all throughout the letter to the Romans, he's been saying, you're in Christ, if you believe in Jesus, you believe that he died for your sins, you believed that he was raised from the dead. If you believe these things, you are in Christ. And if you are in Christ, you can be led by the Spirit of God. Hallelujah. What a relief. I don't have to lead my own life because I can't handle the burden and the responsibility. Where does so much of our depression, our anxiety, our sense of, am I doing right? Am I failing or succeeding? I don't know. I don't have to lead my own life. I can be led by the Spirit of God, one who is far more qualified to lead me than I am to lead myself, one who truly has my best interests in mind and knows what they are better than I do. Praise the Lord. We can be led by the Spirit of God. And then he goes on to say, if we're led by the Spirit of God, we are sons of God, and we did not receive the spirit of slavery, but through the spirit of adoption we are made sons. What does he mean here? Well, he's saying this because this is the Spirit who earlier is called the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of Jesus, the Son of God, the Spirit of Him who is the Son of God, who is also here called the spirit of adoption. Why does this matter? Well, because there's only one true sonship, the eternal sonship of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Word of God, who is with God from the beginning. He alone is truly the Son of God from all eternity. That title is his by right and by nature. He gives it to us by a gift of grace. And so it's the spirit of adoption that takes us, we who are outside that eternal reality of the sonship of Jesus, takes us from the outside and brings us inside. We are adopted as sons, meaning we share fully because we are in Christ and united to him by the Holy Spirit. We share his own unique eternal sonship. Again, not ours originally and by nature, his alone by nature, but ours now by gift because we share in him. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's why he's called the spirit of adoption. Also in this verse 15, Paul contrasts this spirit of sonship with the spirit of slavery. He says, this, what we receive, it's not that. It's not a spirit of slavery. What you formerly, that's all you knew. You could only obey God. You could only follow God under a spirit of slavery, a sense of, well, I, I have to. But now that you are sons, it's a, I get to, right? A slave is motivated by fear. If I don't do what I'm told, I will be punished. That's what motivates a slave or a servant. But a son or a daughter, a grown son or daughter working in the family business, they're motivated by the joy of ownership. If I do my duty, my family succeeds and prospers. Now think of yourself. When you think of duty, when you think of obedience to the Lord, does that feel like a chore to you? Does that feel like eating your vegetables? Or do you know and have you experienced at times, wait, there's joy 
in following the Lord in obedience. Which is it for you? A chore or a joy? And how you answer that question will say a lot, not only about how you view and understand God and your relationship to Him, but also how you view and understand yourself. That'll show you whether you live and operate under a mindset and a mentality of slavery and servitude, or whether you operate under a mentality of a son, a daughter, a friend of God. Which is it for you? Now, Paul says in verse, end of verse 15 and into 16, that it's the Spirit that causes us to cry, Abba, Father, and this fact that we pray, Abba, Father, that is the proof, he says, that we are children. It's how we know we're children of God because of how we pray. And it's the Spirit who leads us to pray, Abba, Father. Now, Paul is not using this as a litmus test for each individual. Do you pray to God as Father? Do you say Abba when you pray? Do you pray? No, he's not doing it like that. Rather, he takes it for granted that the Christians in Rome to whom he's writing, they're all praying this way as natural as breath, as breathing. This is because Jesus prayed to God as his Father, and it's how he modeled and taught his followers to pray, and it's how the earliest Christians taught each other how to pray. In the prayer of all prayers, it begins, we say, Our Abba, our Dad, who's in heaven, our Father who art in heaven. And in John chapter 16, Jesus is teaching to the disciples some of the last things he says before he's arrested. He says, in that day, I will not ask the Father on your behalf, but you will directly go to the Father. You will ask the Father in my name, but you will ask him directly because the Father himself loves you. You have direct access to the Father. You can call him Father, Jesus is saying. And soon you will understand this. Soon you will realize why you pray this way. And it's because the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and you've believed that I've come from him. We should note that calling God Abba, which was the Aramaic word that children in the time of Jesus would have used the more familiar and intimate word they would have used for dad, Abba. We should note that this made Jesus' enemies hopping mad. They could not stand that he did this. It was unheard of. No self-respecting rabbi would dare to call the Almighty God with such a familiar way, Abba, Father, Dad. And yet Jesus did it over and over again. And he taught his followers to do the same. And this was a new thing. It was unprecedented. There are a few places in the Old Testament where there's a general corporate sense that Israel is God's son and, and the people of Israel know God as a father, but they're few and they're definitely general. They're certainly corporate. It is not this intimate dad, Abba, father. If you've never talked to God and actually said, dad, try it. It's weird at first. It's strange. It feels strangely personal and intimate. If you're used to calling your earthly dad, dad, try that. We've actually 
taken a step back towards the Pharisees in that we've made the way we talk about God as Father so formal. And don't worry, we're not going to pray today, our dad who art in heaven. But just note, we've, we've actually taken a step back towards formality. For Jesus, it was the intimate expression of Abba. And it made his enemies so mad they wanted to kill him for doing this. But this calling God Father, Abba, this is the hallmark of Christian prayer from earliest times that we pray to God as Father. And it doesn't mean you cannot directly address Jesus or talk to the Holy Spirit. Yes, of course you can do that, and Christians have done that all along too. But the default formula, the traditional formula, is we pray to the Father through the Son in the power of the Spirit. So then Paul is saying, your chief identity is as children of God, children of the great king over all, which means that you are either a prince or a princess in that kingdom. You're royalty. And you're royalty and heirs together with the crown prince, Jesus. This great kingdom which lasts forever and rules over all things, it is now our kingdom. We can walk around like we own the place. Not in place of God, not replacing him, but together with God as king. And this is because it is a gift. It does not produce in us a sense of entitlement or conceitedness, as if we deserved this. But because this is utterly and completely gift, what it produces in us is wonder, awe, humility, and above all, love for God and gratitude to him for all that he's done for us. Now, there's one caveat. Look at the end of verse 17. All this is true, Paul says, provided. Provided we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified with him. So, yes, suffering comes with the territory. If you're going to be like Jesus, suffering for doing the Father's will is part of the gig. Now, in the next section, verses 18 to the end of the chapter, Paul will go on to reinforce why this is totally worth it in the end. So stay tuned in future weeks as we continue our series in Romans. But from this passage, we learn that those who believe in Jesus are children of God, heirs with Jesus, adopted into his unique and eternal sonship, and recipients of the greatest kingdom that could ever exist. That's our identity. So then, what's the obligation that goes along with that identity? Now let's bump back up to verse 12 and 13. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. He's saying we have an obligation to put to an end, to bring to an end all those things in us that still remain in rebellion against God. Because God wants it all. And this makes sense. If you're going to be belong to God, it must be total. When you give your life to Jesus, he doesn't settle for anything less than all of you. Not most of you. Not most of the time. But that total surrender to him. One of my favorite things to do as a priest and pastor is, is to marry people. Uh, by that I mean perform the ceremony by which two people marry each other. 
you're visiting today. Uh, no. But in the liturgy, one of the most powerful moments is the exchange of the rings. The vows that are said at that moment are, and with this ring that I give to you, it represents all that I am and all that I have, and with that I honor you. And how would it be if on that day a bride said to a groom or vice versa, and with part of what I have and some of who I am, I'm yours, baby. Doesn't cut it. Also, if the, the groom on the day that they were wed came to his new bride and said, I'm so excited, this is going to be great. By the way, how would, how would it be with you if from time to time I still saw some of my old girlfriends? We know right away, no, that does not fly. Because there's something about the power of the exclusive love between husband and wife that tells us something of the exclusive total surrender of love that God has for us and that he wants us to have for him. And now some of you might have experienced at a retreat, maybe in youth group, whether that was two years ago or two decades ago, that feeling maybe in a worship service of that total surrender, I, I give it all to you, Jesus. Or for some of you, when you came to know Jesus for the first time, there was that, yes, all of who I am, I give to you, only to find out a little bit later on, oh, wait, there's more that I have to give to you. I, I guess I didn't give you everything. Just to say, that's normal. And it didn't mean that that earlier experience was inauthentic. It just meant that that was the first step. Right? Journey of a thousand steps begins with one mile or something like that, right? This is one step on your way to that total surrender, which in one way we'll never fully experience in this life. And we see this dynamic elsewhere in the New Testament. Okay, part of this reality that we are there, we've arrived, we're in the kingdom, and yet we have not arrived totally. We see an example of this. Look over in verse 23, just as another example. Paul's saying over here, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. Wait a minute. In verse 15, he said, we've received the spirit of adoption. Now he's saying, we're waiting eagerly for the spirit of adoption to, to come fully upon us. And yes, that's it. There's an already element. There's a still on the way element. What does this mean for our life in Christ? It means that that obligation to total surrender is ongoing. It's something we come to again and again and again. In fact, every week we have an opportunity to go forward to the altar in total surrender. Because when you give your life to Jesus, he, he wants it all. Not most or most of the time. He wants it all. Now look again at verse 12. Paul uses the language debtors. Literally, that means one who must or one who has an obligation. And typically, we don't like the word obligation. It has negative connotations for us. But remember, there's a difference between the duty and the obligation of slaves who do their duty because they have to, and the duty and the obligation of grown sons and daughters who are doing their duty because they want to. They're all in on the family business. They've bought into the vision and mission. There's a difference between a have to and I want to. Or consider another example. 
Parents have an obligation to take care of their children because their children are weak and can't take care of themselves. But as time passes, the children grow up and the parents become weak. And now the obligation is for those grown children to now take care of their aging parents. Now, if that were a strained relationship, you can imagine that would feel like a chore. But imagine that your relationship to your aging father or mother is good, it's wonderful. Even imagine they're your most favorite person in the world. You love being with them. Well, now you're obligated, yes. As a grown child, you have an obligation to care for your aging parent, but it can at the same time be a joy, a duty and a joy. So our obligation to God is both duty and joy. And why is this so? Well, Paul begins verse 12 with the words, so then, meaning that he's connecting what we're studying and what we read in this passage with what just came before. Well, what just came before? Paul's saying, in light of God's infinite yes to you, his all-surpassing, never-failing, redeeming love in which he gave himself freely and fully, holding nothing back for you, taking your condemnation that you might not be condemned, in light of God's infinite yes to you, what does he want in return? How can we repay him with our total and unqualified yes back to him? Once again, as our creator, the one who made us and gave us existence, and as our redeemer, the one who saved us, we owe this to him. We owe it to him. But it is both our duty and our joy. We want to give this gift of our total selves, holding nothing back to him. Think of Psalm 116. What shall I render unto the Lord for all the good he has done to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation, and I will call on the name of the Lord. It means this. What can I do for all the good that God has done for me? I'll go into the house of the Lord. I will lift up the cup of salvation, which you're going to do in about 37 minutes. Literally, you'll lift up the cup of salvation to say, thank you for what you've done for me. And you'll sing songs to God, and you'll tell others of what he has done for you. That's what it means to proclaim his name. Lift up the cup of salvation and proclaim his name. So as children of God, heirs, owners, recipients of the heavenly kingdom, we have an obligation to put an end to everything left in us that still remains in rebellion against God and his kingdom. But now, the final piece, in this campaign, we are not alone. Look again at verse 13. He's saying if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. Here he's kind of rehearsing, summarizing, repeating what he had just said in verses 5 to 11 that we studied last week. Basically, there are two ways, the way of the flesh, the way of the spirit. The way of the flesh leads to death. The way of the spirit leads to life. So we're debtors not to the flesh, but to the spirit. That's what he's saying. And since we are led by the spirit, in the spirit, we put to death the deeds of the body, he says there in verse 13. We put to death the deeds of the body. Now, quickly here. Deeds of the body in this context means those things you do in this mortal life that are displeasing to God. It does not mean that everything you do in your body is displeasing to God. It can't mean that. 
because elsewhere in the New Testament, we're, we're told to glorify God with our body. So we look at the context, the context makes it clear, okay, Paul's referring only to those things that we do in our life, yes, using our bodies, because even, even to be jealous or to bitter requires the brain part of your body. So when we sin, we're sinning with our bodies, but we're doing those things that are displeasing to God, that are born out of wrong desires, that are perverse and corrupted and not in accordance with his kingdom. So that's what he means by putting to death the deeds of the body. And he goes on to say, or he says, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, and I want to zoom in on four words. By the Spirit, you. Can you find those in verse 13? By the Spirit, you. Here's why I want to zoom in on this, because we start hearing things like put to death the deeds of the body, get rid of the sinful desires that are in you, and that feels like a major project. We don't know where to begin. We don't know how to do that. The fear of failure and the fear of what are the implications if I fail at this, will I lose my salvation? All of this begins to flood against us and make us anxious. So look again, by the Spirit, you. There's two parts by the Spirit and you. So yes, you will be involved. God won't do this without you. He won't destroy the sinful desires in you without you being a part of that. But the first part, by the Spirit, He's leading. He has the plan. You don't have to come up with a plan. You don't have to know how to do this. You don't even have to have the power in yourself to do it. He's got the plan. He's leading. It's by the Spirit. Remember, everything in the Christian life, every single thing is a response to God. He always invites. We accept the invitation. He always initiates. We follow. In the dance, he's the leader, and he never steps on our toes. And be assured, the Holy Spirit knows what needs to change in you. And he wants to change it. He's passionate. He loves you so much, he's not going to leave you as you are, but he's also patient. He's passionate, but he's patient, which means he knows he's not going to overwhelm you all at once with all the things in you that remain in rebellion to God. He's going to show this is the project for this week, this one thing. Here's the one action I want you to take. Here's the one sin I'm convicting you of right now. The Holy Spirit knows how to lead us. He's like an expert hunter or one of those deep-sea fishing guides who knows exactly where to go and how to find the prey. He knows where the sin is. He knows what it is. He knows how to get it out. So you don't need to be the expert hunter. You don't need to be the guide, and the success of this campaign does not rest on you, but there is one thing the Holy Spirit does need. He needs your willingness. He needs your responsiveness. He needs that yes when you hear him speak to do what he says. Recently, uh, another pastor, a few pastors and I are, are working with uh, a person in our congregation who's... Uh, trying to come free from deeply entrenched habitual sin. And some days are good days, some days are bad days. Some weeks are good weeks, some weeks are bad weeks. Some months are good, some are bad. But overall, this person is persevering and little by little making progress. 
Well, most recently, this person said, yeah, there are things that are in my apartment that Jesus has told me, and I know they've got to go. I've got to get rid of them. I've got to throw them out. And so this other pastor and I said, great, let us know when you do. Try to do it today if you can. This is the text we received. Feels so good. And I threw out other related items away in the dumpster this morning too. I have to remember this feeling of freedom and joy. Why do I forget so easily? I have to remember this feeling of freedom and joy when I listen to the Spirit and do what He says. So if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, that if, that's the crucial part for you. But the good news is if you want him to, he will. If you are willing, he will lead. If you let him, you will succeed in rooting sin out. Now, one of the most beloved verses in all the Psalms is the prayer for this moment. And I've got to give this to us to pray this week. If you have a pen, you can write it down. It's Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, or you can just make a mental note. This is the end of Psalm 139. These verses will be familiar to many of you, but this is the beginning. This is the beginning. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Let me read it again. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. How about this week when you're in your time of prayer or as you're opening up the scriptures, what if we commit together to just begin with those verses as a way to once again invite the Lord to search us, to root out the sin that's in us, that we might know the joy of putting an end to those things that are contrary to God's goodness and his love. Amen.